Welcome everyone to another episode of Ancient Weirdness. I am Gunnar Hauser, and today we're going to be examining different attitudes about sexuality in the ancient world, specifically the idea of ritual sex, sex connected to worship, generally of goddesses, but also sometimes of gods, and a rather thorny question that has bedeviled some historians as to whether or not there was ever such a practice as sacred prostitution. In order to approach this, one has to understand that most ancient religious activity was connected to fertility and promotion of fertility, and that involves sexuality. In Mesopotamian and Greek mythology, generations of gods and goddesses are created through sexual reproduction. Yet, there's an idea that the gods could have sex for pleasure as well, and Zeus really exemplifies this in Greek mythology. He's the archetypical cheating husband who sleeps with goddesses, nymphs, human women, you name it, appearing in a number of forms as well, such as a swan when he mates with Leda, and most famously a shower of gold when he seduces Danae, the original golden shower. Aphrodite was known for this activity, too. She carried on an affair with Ares, the god of war, and her husband Hephaestus caught them in the act with a net stretched over the bed. She also mated with a mortal man, Anchises, from the royal family of Troy, and later gave birth to Aeneas. And it was Aeneas who eventually settled in Italy, and his descendants were the founders of Rome. At the wedding of Cadmus and Harmonia, which according to ancient authors was the first time gods ever showed up to a wedding that was held on earth, Harmonius's brother Iasion hooked up with the goddess Demeter. There's always love in the air at weddings. They snuck outside for a little tryst in the dirt in a plowed farming furrow, and what gave the whole thing away was when Demeter came back to the party with a lot of dirt on her backside. And so Zeus killed Iasion with a thunderbolt for daring to do that. There's also same-sex activity described among the gods. Zeus abducts the young boy Ganymede from Troy to become his cupbearer on Mount Olympus. Although it's not made explicit in the myth, Plato, the philosopher, noted the sexual connotations in the story. But there's a very explicit tale which is told in the Contendings of Horus and Set, a papyrus from the Middle Kingdom of ancient Egypt. One story in the papyrus tells of Set having anal sex with Horus, but Horus catching Set's semen in his hand, taking the semen to his mother Isis to complain about what had happened, and they retaliate by putting some of Horus's semen on lettuce in Set's garden, which he then unknowingly eats. During a trial held afterwards to see who would become the real ruler of Egypt, the god Thoth, the judge in the case, calls out to the semen of both Horus and Set. Now, Set's semen had been dumped in the marsh by Isis, so it calls out from there, but Horus' semen calls out from, you guessed it, Set's stomach, and Set has to admit defeat. Obviously, there's ideas of sexual abuse contained in that story. Sometimes it could get even worse, such as when Zeus castrates his father Cronus with a sickle and throws the genitals into the sea. In the Hittite version of that same myth, Kumarbi actually bites off the genitals of his father Anu. So that's the kind of evidence we have from mythology. We're going to move next to what we can actually reconstruct for real ritual sex practices. In several traditions from ancient Mesopotamia, there's an idea of something called the sacred marriage, where the king of a Mesopotamian city-state would play the role of the god Dumuzid. That's his original Sumerian name. He was later known as Tammuz or Adonis by the Greeks, and mate with a priestess of the goddess Inanna, who was standing in for the goddess. 
This was done during the time period that was known in Babylonia as the Akitu, or New Year festival, that happened around the time of the spring equinox. And this sexual act between the king and the chief priestess ensured fertility for the entire kingdom. Modern scholarship is divided, though, as to whether or not this was a purely symbolic rite or whether an actual sex act took place. There's also an idea of priestesses that were dedicated to the goddess Inanna, or Ishtar, as she was called in the Babylonian language. And these priestesses are believed by some to have engaged in sacred prostitution, where customers paid them money that was dedicated to the goddess and became the property of the temple. What makes the whole question a lot thornier, however, is that the various words used for these women don't actually mean prostitute in a literal sense. They translate to the word consecrated. For this reason, some commentators today think that they were just slaves owned by the temples and that the whole idea of sacred prostitution is a myth. We do know, of course, that prostitution existed in many parts of the ancient world. For example, prostitution was taxed in ancient Athens. The name of this tax was the Pornicon. There were women who might correspond to modern ideas of high-class escorts. They were known as hetairas or companions, and we know of several by name. Some of the stories connected to them are rather outlandish. The Greek historian Herodotus mentions the smallest of the major pyramids at Giza, the pyramid associated with the pharaoh Menkere, that there was a rumor that the pyramid had actually been built by a famous courtesan named Rhodopus, financing its construction with the proceeds of her profession. Herodotus tells some very strange stories about Menkere, though. The idea that he actually tried to commit incest with his own daughter, she hanged herself from shame, and then he had her buried in a gilded wooden cow. Now, Herodotus is actually our major source for the whole idea of sacred prostitution, because he describes an aspect of religious practice in Babylon that every woman in that city had to go through a certain rite of passage when they were young where they would have to sit in the temple of the goddess Milita, who was often equated with the Greek goddess Aphrodite, and wait for a stranger to approach her and throw silver into her lap. The man who did this would then announce to her, I choose you in the name of Milita. She would then proceed to sleep with this individual, and then the silver was dedicated to the goddess, and she was free to leave. She would then get married, and it would become a grave offense to offer money for sex to such a woman ever again. Herodotus calls this practice disgusting, and he says that the attractive women were able to fulfill their obligation and leave the temple early, but that the not-so-attractive ones were often stuck there for years. He says that the same practice was done on the island of Cyprus. A Roman-era author, Justin, says that women in Cyprus go down to the seashore to meet with foreigners, and they use the money earned from their trysts for dowries. It's very similar to a story told by the Roman geographer Strabo that both men and women were dedicated to the goddess Anaitis in Armenia. Anaitis, who was also worshipped by the Persians, is often equated also with Aphrodite, and her shrine was at Achillesine. These were sons and daughters of noble families as well, and after performing these services for a period of time, they left to get married. A lot of these examples seem to fall under the heading of what anthropologists would call rites of passage, and they may equate to sacred sex, but not necessarily to sacred prostitution. The Roman imperial author Lucian, in his essay called On the Syrian Goddess, describes worship of Atargatus, a fertility deity, at the site of Hierapolis Bambike, what is now Mambij in Syria. He describes women at the temple having sex with foreigners, but also men becoming priests of Atargatus by castrating themselves. He also mentions the presence of a lot of phallic statues around the shrine, which were in different parts of the ancient world. 
In ancient Athens, they had the festival to the god Dionysus, which involved very, very large parade floats in the shape of phalluses going through the streets of Athens. In the Greek world, there were a number of places famous for this practice, at least supposedly. The Temple of Aphrodite at Eryx in western Sicily was one, but so was the city of Corinth. The city was renowned, at least in some circles, as a place where Hetairas serviced sailors, and they were said to be very dedicated to the worship of Aphrodite and also very influential in the city's politics. They are said to have prayed to Aphrodite for the deliverance of Greece from the invasion of Xerxes in 480 BC. There's also the account of the Corinthian athlete Xenophon, who after winning at the Olympic Games in 464 BC, dedicated 100 girls to Aphrodite the prostitute. There's a story from Rome, going back to the earliest mythology of the city, of a prostitute named Acca Laurentia, who slept overnight in a temple and mated with Hercules. When she left the temple the next morning, Hercules instructed her to marry the first man that she met in the forum. The first man that she met happened to be a really wealthy guy named Tarutius, who she then married, and after he died, she put in her will that she wanted to leave her vast wealth to the people of Rome. It probably comes as no surprise that monotheistic traditions have a lot of negative things to say about these practices. It's said in the second book of Maccabees that the Seleucid Greek king, Antiochus IV, installed sacred prostitutes in the Hebrew temple in Jerusalem. Several centuries before that, Josiah, king of Judah, had supposedly removed a number of cubicles that were set up around the temple and were being rented out to women to use as quote-unquote shrines. This has been likened to areas rented out by pimps for prostitution. Interestingly enough, at the Etruscan site of Pyrgi in Italy, archaeologists who have excavated a structure known as Temple B dedicated to the goddess known as Uni in Etruscan, Astarte to the Phoenicians, or Juno to the Romans, have found very similar cubicles. And moving into Roman imperial times, the Christian historian Eusebius says that Constantine, the first Roman emperor to ever become a Christian, closed down a shrine in Africa, which is in modern-day Lebanon, that contained both male and female prostitutes. Now, there was actually a school of philosophers called the Cyrenaics, because their founder, Aristippus, was from the city of Cyrene in what is now Libya. He was said to have been a pupil of Socrates in Athens, and he is described as a hedonist, someone who lived for pleasure, because he said that momentary sense experience is the only thing that an individual can trust to be real. So this is what he pursued. However, he did say that one must still keep pleasures under some kind of self-control. From that same school came a philosopher known as Theodorus the Atheist, who kept getting kicked out of places. He was kicked out of Serene. He was almost prosecuted in Athens for impiety. Then he went to Egypt, probably went along with an expelled tyrant named Demetrius of Phaleron, who had tried to protect him in Athens. He was sent by Ptolemy I, king of Egypt, on an embassy to another Hellenistic ruler named Lysimachus, and did something at Lysimachus's court to really upset him. Lysimachus said, I'm going to have you crucified. And Theodore shot back with the statement, well, it matters not if I rot in the ground or if I rot in the air. And the rather flabbergasted Lysimachus let him go. Theodorus got into a debate with a woman named Hipparchia, who was a cynic philosopher, the only woman who's described in Diogenes Laertius's book, Lives of the Eminent Philosophers. 
like all cynic philosophers, Hipparchia liked to do things publicly that would shock people. And so her version of this was to have public sex with her husband, Crates, another cynic philosopher. Theodorus apparently thought that she was rather easy for this reason. When they got into a philosophical debate, when she stumped him with one of her statements, he responded by lifting up her dress. It's not recorded whether Hipparchia had any bad reaction to this. An interesting side note to all of this is the topic of sexual attraction to statues, specifically those of gods and goddesses. This is what is known today as a galmatophilia. Some of this stemmed from their ideas about just how lifelike these things could become. There's many reports from the ancient Western world of statues that would move from time to time. Our favorite author here, Lucian, in his book Lover of Lies, talks about a man named Eucrates, who had a statue of a Corinthian general named Pelicus. This was a sleepwalking statue. It would wander the halls at night, and it said that it actually healed its owner of an illness. But sometimes statues had sexual connotations. There's a famous marble statue of the god Pan having sex with a goat, and this was found at the Villa of the Papyri at Herculaneum in Italy. Athenaeus, in his collection called The Learned Banqueters from the Roman period, describes two stories of people who got a little too fond of statues. One he mentions by name, Clesiphus of Salimbria, who got the hots for a female statue wrought of Parian marble on the island of Samos, and he shut himself up in the temple overnight to have his way with it. Something similar happened to an unnamed man who came as a religious pilgrim to Delphi, to the area that was sacred to the god Apollo, and he did the same thing with a male statue, after he had sated himself, he put an expensive crown on the statue, and then he was caught by the priest. But when they asked the oracle of Apollo, what do we do with this guy? The answer was, oh, don't punish him. He gave a nice gift to the statue. But far and away, the most famous example of this phenomenon is the story connected to the statue of Aphrodite of Canidus. This was commissioned by the people of the town of Canidus on the coast of what is now Turkey from one of the most famous sculptors of the 4th century BC, Praxiteles. Praxiteles did not tell the people of Canidus, though, that he was going to make a nude statue of Aphrodite. At this stage in ancient Greek history, there had been very little precedent for female nudity in sculpture. However, male nudity had been common for centuries. Supposedly, Praxiteles got a famous hetaira or courtesan named Phrine to pose for the statue, which depicted Aphrodite preparing for a bath. Her breasts were exposed, but she used one hand to cover up her nether regions. And this statue turned into a tourist attraction. Individuals, usually male, would travel long distances in the Mediterranean world just for a glimpse of Praxiteles' work and stare at the statue for hours from every conceivable angle because it was a statue in the round. It was supposedly so realistic that a joke started to circulate that Aphrodite had seen the statue and it said, when did Praxiteles get to see me naked? And one visitor took things a little further than just gazing at it in admiration. And when caught in the midst of this statutory hanky-panky, he was so overcome with shame that he fled the shrine and later jumped off a cliff. And according to Pliny the Elder, this is why they didn't bother to clean up the mess afterwards. A stain bears witness to his lust. Those are Pliny's words, and the implication is they left the telltale stain on there to remind everyone of what could happen to somebody who tried to do it again. The original does not survive. It seems it was taken to Constantinople and later destroyed in a fire in the 5th century AD, but several copies of it were made in the Roman period, of which a few survive. 
The Romans knew her as Venus, and there's even a statue in the Naples Museum today showing her clothed but flashing her bare buttocks, and this is known as Venus Calipige, or Venus of the Beautiful Ass. Now, some things in regard to our topic today can be said about Asian traditions. Many of you are probably familiar with the practice of yoga. There's actually a branch called Hatha Yoga that describes certain sexual techniques where the yoga master draws his semen back out of the vagina of his female partner after ejaculating. There's also a practice where water is pumped into the anus through a pipe, which is said to give the yogi a physique, and I quote, like the god of love. There's also a focus on sexuality and sexual energy in tantric Buddhism, and nobody exemplifies this better than Drukpa Khonli, probably in the late 1400s, early 1500s, so this is a little bit out of the date range that we usually cover here on Ancient Weirdness, but we just can't pass up on this guy. The stories are too good. He was a Buddhist lama, a master, originally from Tibet, but he moved to the area that is now known as the nation of Bhutan, who said that he wanted to save the souls of everyone. He says, I have come for the sake of all beings, but at the same time, anytime he arrived in a new place, he asked where all the alcohol was and where all the women were. And this was quite shocking to many people, where he recited poetry like the lama's thick penis is the plague of nuns, avoided by shouting to awaken the neighbors, which creates quite a visual image. His penis was called the Flaming Thunderbolt of Wisdom. He would use it to smash the teeth out of the mouths of demons. He also once shoved it up a demon's ass, used it to destroy a boulder that a demon was hiding within. This crime-fighting wedding tackle is said to have had a very distinctive appearance. It's said to have had a head shaped like an egg, a trunk shaped like a fish, and a root like the snout of a pig. He once also covered a possessed girl with his foreskin to bind the demon. But there's even stories of the magic power of other things that came out of his penis. He encountered an old man who had painted a scroll and was taking it to another holy man to have it blessed. Drukpa asked, can I see your scroll? He unrolled it, looked at it and said, I can improve this thing. And he urinated on it. The old man began to cry, said, what have you done, you crazy man? But Drukpa Kunli simply rolled it up and handed it back to him, saying, go and show it to the holy man, just like you planned. And the old man came into the Lama's presence, very, very apologetically said, I painted the scroll for you. I wanted you to bless it, but then some insane individual pissed on it. I'm still going to show it to you. I apologize. So it was unrolled, and it turns out that every place where Drukpa Kunli's urine had splashed, the scroll was actually covered in gold. And images of his sanctified John Thomas can be seen all over the country of Bhutan even today. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. I'm looking forward to having you back for the next episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser.